if the church is the gathering point, the point into which, the place into which people come from every walk of life, from battling with every sort of challenge, what must that space do to aid in the healing restorative process, knowing that those images and reminders of one's dignity are usually absent from visual representation in many other places. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe that the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm Matt Burke, and with me today is actually Shelly Riggs-Jordan. Hey, Shelly. Hey, Matt. How are you today? Doing all right. How are you? Doing all right. Thank you. Good. And Shelly is the Southeast Director for the Center for Congregations. Her office is down in Seymour, Indiana. And Ben Tapper, for those of you who heard the end of Season 5, Episode 3, Ben Tapper has moved on to a different occupation. If you want to hear more about that and where to follow him, you can check out the end of Season 5, Episode 3. But Shelly is going to be one of my co-hosts for the rest of the season, along with another co-host that we will introduce later. But Shelly, do you want to tell folks a little bit about your background in congregational life? Sure. I am a 25-year veteran of youth ministry, one of my favorite jobs ever. I got to work with junior high and senior high students and young adults. I miss the chaos and energy of youth ministry, but I really love what I get to do now, kind of working with congregations from a higher, not a higher level, just I guess a more big picture level, because we get to see all parts of congregational life instead of just that one. Sure. And I love the fact that you use the word veteran because youth ministry, you are definitely in the trenches. So. Yes, you are. You are. But it's really cool to see somebody, you know, from the time they're born. I remember thinking the thing I was looking the most forward to was the kids that I got to help baptize, wherever in your tradition you do that, that I might also have an opportunity to marry some of Mm -hmm. them. But one of the coolest moments was when I got to baptize a child of one of the students that was in my youth ministry. Oh, wow. Yeah, equal parts. Oh my gosh, how am I old enough to do that? And this is so cool. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks, Shelly. And Shelly's been a valuable part of the Center for Congregations for a number of years now and has a lot of good expertise and works with a different demographic of congregations simply because the demographics of congregations in Southeast Indiana are a bit different. It's definitely a lot more rural and fewer metro centers. So how has that informed your time here at the center? I mean, what differences have you seen with us as your colleagues, the way we talk about congregations versus what you've seen down in Southeast? Um, I think just the size of congregations in general in the Southeast is much smaller. And one of the things I think that's kind of unique to small churches because our Christian world kind of moved into bigger is better. I mean, the 80s, right? We said everything is bigger and better in the 80s and we're finally recovering from that. 
but it gave small churches the impression that if they didn't have these big youth groups or they didn't have these big numbers in worship that they weren't doing something right. But small congregations have this unique opportunity to become family in a way that bigger congregations really have to work at. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that I get to do is remind small churches of their value and all the opportunities they have Mm -hmm. because of the size that they are. So I think that's the biggest difference is hearing you guys talk about, you know, all these big churches and all these metro areas and we just don't have that and that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're grateful, Shelly, that you're a part of the co-hosting of this podcast and the perspectives that you're going to bring. So thanks for being a part of it. Thanks for asking. I'm excited about this. Yeah, absolutely. So our topic today is about the arts and the intersection of faith and spirituality in the arts. And we're interviewing in a little bit, Dr. Winterbourne Harrison Jones. I'll introduce him in a little bit, but it's something that I'm really interested in because I really appreciate those spaces where not just arts, but all kinds of things that we may not think intersect with faith. And so this is a topic that I'm really interested in. But have you seen this specific thing about the arts and faith show up in your work at all with Southeast Indiana congregations? I don't know that I've had a lot of people asking me about this, but I think people are starting to ask different questions, new questions. And I Mm -hmm. think there's a whole generation of students now that grew up in youth ministries that were very experiential. Mm. And, you know, I think we did a lot of things differently in youth group than would happen on a Sunday morning during a regular service. Mm-hmm. And I think you have this generation now that really kind of like that. And so they're looking for, I think they just don't want to sit in the pew. I think mm-hmm. they want to be engaged. And I think those are the questions they're asking. How do we engage folks? And I think that the idea of arts and worship is a fantastic way to engage people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think different people get engaged in different ways, but that's one of the great things about having different kinds of congregations, right? That some may be very passionate about the arts, some may be very passionate about the sciences for some reason, and be able to bring that in as an aspect of who they are. Yeah, I've not encountered a whole lot of requests or thoughts about it in congregations in Northeast Indiana in my time at the center. I haven't had a lot of specific questions about the arts and congregational life, but anecdotally, I grew up in pretty conservative evangelical congregational movement that simplicity was the order of the day. Mm. So, you know, the worship space and, and everything was relatively austere in how we did things. And I've seen a lot of people that I knew that grew up in that same tradition move to more liturgical, what's called, you know, quote, high church types of liturgies that are more embracing of the different senses, even into like Eastern Orthodoxy with incense. And finding real value in, as you say, it's jelly, the experience of the worship service as opposed to just the explication of the word. So I think it's something that is growing in people's consciousness. Yeah. Well, we have five senses, right? seems like the more we can engage them, the more we can reach people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It seems like we lost that somewhere along the way, or at least some traditions. I'm speaking from my past experience, not all traditions, (laughs) but some traditions have kind of lost that along the way and moved to a more intellectual or, you know, audio only type of understanding about engaging (laughs) in faith. So really enjoyed this interview. We'll go ahead and get to that. This is Dr. Winterborne Harrison Jones, who is the senior pastor of Witherspoon Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis. And we hope you enjoy our conversation with him as much as we did. Hey, 
everybody. Welcome back. With us is Dr. Winterborne Harrison-Jones, who's the senior pastor of Witherspoon Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. Dr. Harrison-Jones, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so happy to be here with you and Shelley. And we're happy to have you. I'm delighted to speak with you because you're going to be doing an education event for us in the near future. And in our conversation in preparation for that, we begin to talk about your interest in the intersection of the arts and faith and spirituality. Yeah. And something that I'm very passionate about as well. And I would just love to hear just for you personally, just as part of your story, where did that love come from? Where did you kind of find that intersection being something that you enjoyed focusing on? Wow, that's a good question. I would say that it comes from really the intersection of faith and culture. Or if I had to use the way that James Cone talks about it, Christ and culture. So certainly my lineage as a PK and my experience in church itself. And so architecture and liturgy and music and style and fashion, celebration and lament, preaching, song, all of those things always excited me as a child. Certainly the religious experience there at my grandfather's church, the New Samaritan Baptist Church in Washington, was so awe-inspiring as a child. And because I was the pastor's grandson and went to church often with my grandmother, I had sort of that front row sneak peek of religious experience. So Everything from preparation to setup to the intentionality behind colors and form always amazed me. And so my love for religious spaces, spiritual spaces, counter spaces, as I call them now in my academic work, were tied to my understanding of the role of the church as a gathering place for community. Mm. And so I early on learned that there was some connection between the light settings and how people felt. I learned early on there was something about the changing of the vestments. Of course, I knew nothing about the word vestments then, but there was something that tied us together in a different way spiritually when they changed from orange to green, per se. I learned that there was a different mood in the sanctuary when Ponsettas lined the chancel and when the cross was draped in purple. There was something different after a tremendous experience of loss, something traumatic when the sanctuary was filled with lament. Mm. And I noticed early on how not only the aesthetics of the space invoked a spiritual and emotional response, but also how the actors in the space changed form mm. as well. So from that experience all of my life, and then, of course, growing up in Washington, D.C., and having had the wonderful opportunity to sing in the Washington Youth Orchestra, and uh, or the choir, rather, and to play in the D.C. Youth Orchestra, and to begin to sort of tie these elements throughout religious traditions. The National Cathedral, where we would sing, the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception, the Basilica, rather, there at the center of Catholic University, National Presbyterian Church, there on the backside of Wisconsin Avenue, I believe it is. And even our family travels down to the South where we're from, Flint Hill Missionary Baptist Church, which still has the large family cemetery that goes back two centuries. I began to sort of draw these parallel lines between art, design, and belonging. Hmm. And in all of these spaces, I began to notice certain elements that aided in the feeling 
of the transcendent, the sort of lifting of the spirit, and the role of the church as a gathering place during times of both celebration, uh, political engagement, lament, what have you. And so that sort of love sent me really on a journey that then fed into my academic studies. When I went to Fisk, I majored in religious and philosophical studies and art. My love for curating was birthed, sort of how do you then talk about what I'm feeling and the power of space in creating communities. So I was a student docent at the Carvin Vecton Art Gallery at Fisk and, and learned to curate with Dr. Victor Simmons and put on shows. And I began to do events with the president of our university, the Honorable Hazel O'Leary, who served as the United States Secretary of Energy under President Clinton. And But this love for art and spirituality. And then my mentor, Dr. Jason Curry, Dean of the Chapel, began to allow me to experiment with design placement and lighting and sound and creation of liturgy. And so all of that sort of blossomed into this wonderful, uh, and I must say in high school also, contrary to my brother's, <laughs> to his chagrin, I was not <laughs> quite athletic. <laughs> my brother, Daniel, who is now an ancestor, we were nine years apart. I had a tough time as a child being so artistic with a brother who was so athletic and like Saul being knocked from his horse on the road to Damascus. I did try out for junior varsity in middle school, and I too was knocked from my horse, <laughs> and my name too was changed from Saul <laughs> to Paul. And so I knew that was not my route. But I will say that my teachers in high school allowed me to experiment with design and staging. Uh, Miss Reader was my art teacher. I went to Theodore Roosevelt High School, this humongous high school in D.C., with the old-fashioned theatrical stages where you had to make play scenery out of paper and make it sort of 3D, 4D, 5D, and hoist it up. So, so design and the spirit and faith and how to create spaces where people feel affirmed and where belonging can take place, whether I knew it or not always, were always a part of my journey and is a large part of what I do now, even as a senior pastor. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that, the breadth of the journey for you. Yeah. And I love your credo that you talk about, essentially, us being ourselves is one of the most yeah. important things. And it sounds like that's been your journey. I'm really curious about the connection between space and belonging, because I don't know that I've ever really heard that articulated before, especially in relation to the arts. So can you say a little bit more about how spaces and how staging and design develop a sense of belonging? Sure, I'll attempt to, the <laughs> best I can. <laughs> so in my academic work, I have come to know this as counter spaces. These are spaces designed specifically to affirm one's sense of somebodyness, particularly uh, for those who are otherwise marginalized in other spaces. So the Black church, as I, I usually don't use sort of monolithic terms, but sort of the Black religious experience and sort of Thurman language, the Black church in its function, both as political center, as a religious center, and as a social cultural sort of mediary in some sense, has always had to be that place that no matter what has happened throughout the day, throughout the week, that when you enter the doors, you knew you were somebody. So that the aesthetic of dressing and the millinery arts, 
this beautiful book on crowns that explores the religious importance of the millinery arts and hat wearing amongst African-Americans, the gospel tradition, and even in the preaching. Frank Thomas has a great deal of archival work around the uh, sacred rhetoric within the Black religious experience. So the church itself is a counter space. Mm-hmm. And not that every church within the Black religious experience necessarily deals with this work in this way as I do, but one could make an argument that the Black church as a, not a moment, but a movement has served in that way for the last two, three hundred some odd years. And so for me, because I'm an artist, my question is, if this is the case, if the church is the gathering point, the point into which, the place into which people come from every walk of life, from battling with every sort of challenge, what must that space do Mm. to aid in the healing, restorative process, knowing that those images and reminders of one's dignity are usually absent from visual representation in many other places. Today is the 2nd of February, as we're making this recording, and we are dealing down with the report from the College Board of how they have redacted the AP course in African-American history and culture. I will not go deeply into that, but the reality that so much of Black history, so much of Black spirituality, so much of Black personhood has been erased intentionally from human history, American history. And so if the church, as I would argue, is the premier institution through which and by which African-Americans can set their own agenda, then as an artist, what then is the charge of the space itself? What images must people see? How does liturgy express human dignity? How does our preaching lift and create sort of in Kingian terms a vision of, a, of the beloved community? And so walls are canvases to me. Mm. Liturgy becomes uh, play scripts. My vestments become a part of the costume wardrobe that tie me both to liturgical tradition and to cultural grounding. The selection of songs become almost scientific because you are intentional about what you want people to feel as tied to whether it's a national event or the human predicament. So this dance and sacred space of art and song and music and lighting, I remind my friends often, as Reverend Billy Myers, my dear friend, Emmy Award-winning actor who lives here in Indianapolis, reminds people often that even theater came out of the church. So all of these elements for me aid in the process of people, regardless of your race, class, or creed, who otherwise oftentimes do not have this feeling of home anywhere else, this sort of connectivity to something greater, something deeper than our sort of siloed existences otherwise. And how all of these elements, just like the collage pieces of a mural by Romare Bearden, how all of these pieces come together to create one sense of belonging, that in this space, I hear, I see, I feel that I too am a part of God's work and God's creation. And no matter what images, representations, absences, erasures, uh, gaps there may be, I know a place. Even this morning, we're beginning to transform our campus here, uh, which is oftentimes hard to do for Black History Month because so much of what we do is 365 days a year. But we transform the narthex and the nave into an art gallery. Members bring in uh, African art. We partner with the Arts Council and 
gallery, I forget what it's called. They lend us their pedestals and people come and walk through the halls. There's something empowering about that and that it happens in sacred space mm. makes it even more special. That whatever one's, if you're Christian per se, whatever one's understanding of the Imago Day, it includes you and it includes me. And we are intentional about our color selection, the words we use. Uh, everyone ought to have a place where they believe God smiles even on them. Mm. And that is how I approach art and design to do what sometimes words alone cannot do. Mm what preaching alone is incapable of doing, which sometimes if those elements are not in place, even what you do within the formal liturgy has fallen flat because there is no landing place that has greeted someone and welcomed someone before the first word has ever been spoken. I am blown away by what you're saying because you're creating in me this feeling of when I walk into your congregation, that there is a sacredness, that there is a place for me, no matter who I am or what's going on in my life, because you're so intentional about every aspect of what happens from the time people walk in until they leave. And somebody's going to connect with something. 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 Yeah. What a beautiful gift. And as the preacher... I'm okay if it's not the spoken word. Good for you. <laughs> you know, I've seen many Sundays when the choir has done my job. And I said, there's no need for me to ramble through this. <laughs> yes. You know, on Good Friday, when persons walked in to the sanctuary, the lights were red and we created this Via de la Rosa mm. with candles. There had to be at least 700 candles, literally, going from our aisle up to the piece. And though the Passion of the Christ has its challenges, it tells the story probably the best way Hollywood has ever told the story of the crucifixion. And before the call to worship was given, the assignment was complete mm. because people entered that setting where the spirit was already present and where art and intentionality, as you've called it, Shelley, had already done its work. So therefore, I become a supporting actor to that which is already on the stage. Yes. And we did just that. I literally rewrote the liturgy in the moment. Wow. Because by the time 12 o'clock came, people's eyes were already filled with tears Mm. and prayer had already begun. You give people in a time and culture where we're told not to express ourselves, you give people permission to feel whatever it is they're feeling. That's just an incredibly safe space that we don't have very much in the world we inhabit. You're right, Shelley. Even some of the work we've done here at Witherspoon since my arrival we've begun to really ask questions about what does it mean to be community? So we, as Presbyterians, like as, as other religious traditions may have it too, we have passed a peace. And I stood for many years, literally, in the sort of Du Bois sense as a social scientist and studied the patterns of people. You know, you say the peace of Christ be with you and no one's locking eyes. You know, you're looking at one person, you're going on to the next person. And what I realized is that many of my members had been in the same space for 30, 40 years but it never really built connections. Mm. And that sort of liturgical piece was an example of the, the power of community getting lost in the sort of the ebb and flow of we, this is what we do. And so creating spaces, both artistically and liturgically and physically, which allow people the freedom to peel back the layers of who they are and not tying it to any generation. So you're not 
judging the young for being foolish and you're not telling those who are now older that it's too late. Mm -hmm. How in safe space can we come into contact with different dimensions of who we are? And again, I would argue that artistic expression has a great deal to do with ushering in that safe space, that the space is not sterile, the space is not cold. My mentor, Carolyn Williams, I have to call her name, bless her soul. Her daughter now works at one of the higher levels of Marriott or Hilton. And so a lot of my work with Carolyn, she was the head of the Travel and Tourism Academy at my high school. And so the idea of hospitality, you know, I think the church is not void from learning some of these lessons from these other sectors, is my biggest point. Whether you call them customer service, whether you call it hospitality, whether you call it whatever it is, how do you create environments where people feel whole? Mm. And even in our fragmentation, our brokenness, our lament, we come to a place where the healing waters of God still flow. And so it is not a completed work, it is a work in progress. And every day, every opportunity that we enter these doors, we try to do it a bit better. Mm. And so this idea is not only liturgical, it's not only artistic, but it's also how we shape our programs here at the church in our sort of course offerings or in how we lean into the arts. That happens to be our niche. But here today, every Tuesday and Thursday, we have an acting company here where the oldest actor is 93. <laughs> That's awesome. The youngest actor, I will not say that, but is uh, within that biblical timeline of four score and, and 10, <laughs> I think is what the Bible said. And they gather twice a week and they're tap dancing. <laughs> they're laughing. They're learning. Community is being created. What's so powerful about that acting group, which is called Actors Inc. at Witherspoon, Many of them were members here for years, but never at this level. Mm. Because the spirit of the place has changed such that new connections can be made. It's all how you understand the role of the church and the role of space. And if you are willing or open to everything not happening between 11 and 1230 on a Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. I heard you say it's not sterile. And I love that image because so many of our congregations, I think, are unintentionally sterile because we have uh, yeah. liturgy we have to get through. We have order we have to get through. We do things a certain way and we don't invite, I guess, maybe real genuine feelings. And I hear you saying, you know, yeah. God extends this invitation for us to be our authentic selves. And here at Witherspoon, there's a space for that. Our authentic selves. You know, I did a sermon series this past summer on uh, something. Um, don't edit that out, but just keep that. <laughs> <laughs> it was on something. But one of the sermons was on play, mm. and one was on creativity, and I enjoyed it. James Evans, great black scholar, died this year, but one of his more unknown books is a book on play, The Holiness of Play. And so much of Scripture deals with the creative dimensions of even God the creation story, he's painting pictures and creating animals and sun. I mean, all of that. And even our music, this is part of the sermon, the great hymn, Lord of the Dance. I danced in the morning when the sun, I danced in the evening, da, 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 da. One of the biggest challenges I had during COVID, and I will admit this, is I never could fall into pre-recorded sermons. And many of my colleagues did, and you know, you do what's best for your congregation. 
But Witherspoon also had no streaming. We had just renovated our sanctuary, put in cameras. We were gearing up. We did it that December. We were gearing up to start streaming for the first time in a hundred and some odd years, Easter, and the world shut down. Mm -hmm. And so we had this mad race. We were recording songs back to back. And one night we came in, I was going to preach three sermons back to back. And we were going to broadcast live. And I heard the first sermon. I said, this is God awful. <laughs> and it's the worst preaching I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> when the sound tech, whose name is Dwayne Garrett, asked me, Pastor, what do you mean? I said, it's void of people. It's not in living response to the world. Well, of course, then comes the George Floyd. And, and I mean, just, just, just everything sort of unfolds that year. So I moved Witherspoon to the telephone for nine months. And while some of that was because we were building the technological capacity to broadcast, the other piece was that it gave me the freedom to respond to the needs of the people in real time. Mm -hmm. Liturgy is alive. You know, and we have our books of common order and things of that nature, but, but liturgy is also birthed in the moment. It is a part of the spirit. And I could not imagine recording something on a Wednesday something as traumatic as the death of George Floyd happens on a Thursday. I don't know the dates, but I'm using this as an example. And then the worship service on Sunday speak nothing mm -hmm. about, or someone in the congregation dies, or someone has a child, you know, or one of my children passes the spelling bee, you know, all of these things. So, you know, the way I approach liturgy, those elements I just mentioned are just as important as scripture reading itself, because it reminds you that God is alive in the lives of, of the people. And so I've been known to spontaneously call up children, you acknowledge awards, you create laughter moments, you offer lament. All of these elements bring the liturgy alive. Liturgy is not something you pull off the shelf. It is something that I believe as I approach shaping worship services, you put in conversation with the heartbeat of the people and you allow that to dance in ways that are authentic and that ways that are offer invitation for people to be a part of something. And I do believe that there is something rewarding to know that what you are experiencing is not a canned experience, that even if something awe-worthy happened the morning of, it makes its way into the liturgy. And that is community for me. I think that's an amazingly courageous and spirit-led way to pastor. And I don't know that every pastor leans into that, but it's so exciting for me to hear you talk about that. And I hope you are mentoring. I'm sure you are, but what an amazing gift you're giving to not just your congregation, but church in general. You know, this could be poor organization or it could be dancing with the spirit. Who knows? Who knows? It's dancing you know. with the spirit, Dr. Harrison Jones. It's dancing with the spirit. I lean in the tension of both of those realities. <laughs> but for God to always be at work, we must always be receptive for the inbreaking of the Spirit. To say God is always at work or God is always speaking, and then to close off, you know, any part of is to sort of, you know, Dr. King charged America with being schizophrenic. It is to sort of say one thing and do something else. If God is always working, always moving, always creating, then there are, there has to be an element of spontaneity mm. in all things tied to God. At least I would argue that. And just as no snowflake is the same and no leaf is the same, no religious encounter should be the same, mm. even within the same religious institution. And I can imagine that this just 
flows out of you because it's part of who you are and part of what you've developed over your lifespan. For some hearing this, it might be very daunting to think about shifting to an understanding of the inbreaking of the spirit into their liturgy. And it might be daunting for them to think about losing control to some degree of the order of service. Where can someone start if they're compelled by this, but just not sure how to even begin? What's the starting point for someone in that space? It's a very good question, Matt. And again, this is a work in progress. I have to pull words from Paul. I do not count myself to have apprehended in any way. And even how we have had to be strategic about introducing this style to an institution as historic as Witherspoon mm-hmm. has been a process. Mm-hmm. So this was not overnight. This was a buy-in and lots of listening and lots of intentional and courageous and sometimes subtle nudges in a new direction. But the question I always ask myself as I begin this work is how does this liturgy respond to the lives of the people? That began first by me acknowledging the lack of gender-inclusive language in the liturgy. Mm-hmm. It was not always just changing the form of the worship service. I began to ask different questions about how do we select liturgy? The absence of certain cultural representations, the the Sunday school books that only have still Eurocentric representations of biblical characters. So some of this work happened in Christian ed, some of it happened through youth ministry, but it happened with asking different questions. I don't know who it is, but the quote is quite famous that every good preacher ought to preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, I think that worship must be the same, that there has to be this dance that whether, you know, you are speaking of something as traumatic as killings throughout the nation, or there's just been a tornado, like our sisters and brothers in, I think it was Alabama two weeks ago. What do you say? You know, I mean, how does the liturgy then speak to the presence of God, Emmanuel, in that situation. And I don't know who said this, but someone said, preach the gospel, but only use words when necessary. Mm-hmm. Not sure who you want to get credit. It may have been Matt Burke, who knows. But, uh, I think it might have been St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah, 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 you know, or him. Yeah, or him. But yeah, but I like Matt better. But uh, so we began to ask different questions, and those different questions led us into a new creative direction that did not happen overnight. Now for us, it led to a renovation of the sanctuary. You know, with a spoon, we had this wall of separation between the choir and the pulpit. It was dark and it was sort of ghoulish. And and so we took the wall down. And so it led us to even change physical spaces. Mm -hmm. How do you open the chancel? You know, why is there a wall? You know, why is the preacher ducked down behind the the pulpit? (laughs) You know, or simple things like the children want to dance, but we have no space to dance. Well, you can't keep telling the kids you can't, you know, you can't keep saying, well, we want kids in church and then say, well, we have no space for you in the sanctuary. So it forced us. So new questions and inviting different people to the table who are co-creators. That's the other piece. I do not create liturgy, art, exhibits, or anything in a silo. Mm-hmm. They're always communal because people bring their different gifts talents, insights, and life experiences to a project. So if by chance there is a pastor who hears this, or religious leaders or lay persons, whoever, that are inspired, it is to open the question, is to have that conversation. And for us, it was about how do we create 
religious experiences where people come into contact with the divine. And then the other piece for us, as we specifically wanted to grow in certain age demographics, we had to ask ourselves, is the physical space prepared to accommodate the gifts and talents of all of those people? Mm. That led us to change the space, to make new decisions, to light the stage differently, to open the chancel, which ultimately led to our budget. You know, you have to invest in new ministry. So it all sort of snowballs as you talk about shaping culture and developing new ways of being within religious community. But our art gallery here at the church was not birthed by any adult. It was by a child. You know, we had all the schematics out. We were changing the sanctuary from burnt orange to blue and gray. And and I had a young artist here who was seven then. His name is Braylon Satterfield. He said, Pastor, I said, yes. He said, there's nothing here for me. Mm. So what do you mean? This child said, you have all this stuff with these old people. (laughs) (laughs) At seven, he said, I want to hang my art on the wall. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, you take us to the gallery all the time, but we have walls here. Mm. From that conversation out of the mouth of babes. Mm. So we shifted the pictures of the pastors and all that stuff to a history room, still respecting, but you know, being intentional. And we opened up the very little wall space we have in the sanctuary area, but we opened it up, we plastered it, we installed gallery hangings. And the first show was art from all the children. Mm-hmm. And from that, we now we invite members of the congregation to show their private collections. We have local artists who come in and do exhibits, all because the child recognized, I hear you, but I don't see a place for me and my gifts in this enterprise. Mm-hmm. And out of that was birthed the Sankofa Art Gallery. Wow. Not only did the child speak up, but you listened and you acted. You said, I hear you. I see you. Here is a space for you. Here's a space. Yeah. And there has not been a year gone by where he has not intentionally added. And then I sent him down to the IMA, Kelly Morgan, who was the curator there. I said, now, I'm not just going to hang your art, Braylon. You're going to be the curator of the space. And so Kelly took Braylon with her for a series of Saturdays and taught him what it meant to hang a show, what it meant to create a storyline. So at eight now, he's 11, 10 or so now, I don't know how old really is now. That's his job. That's what anchors him in community. He comes through and ensures that the exhibits are set, that the lighting is correct, that the angles are good, that everything's hanging straight on the wall, and that even that space becomes an opportunity for spiritual rejuvenation or sometimes social engagement. We have some pieces of art. I collect pieces intentionally by Tony Radford, a great artist here in town. Tony is responsible for Meet the Artist, the big Black History art celebration at the City Library. You can't see it on screen, but even this mural behind me on the legacy of lynchings in America is by Tony. He lends his work, and I've purchased many pieces. So some of the pieces, when we talk about spiritual encounter for me, it is not an aversion of tough topics or of challenging realities. It is that even in this space, we can have those conversations Mm -hmm. because I believe in the innate dignity of who you are. Now, we don't have to agree on all points, but uh, it is that even when we talk about the power of art to inspire community, some of that has to do with how do you create environments where people can have the tough conversations that otherwise can't happen in other polarized spaces? Mm -hmm. And how can the church then be a mediator or mediator 
of those kind of endeavors as well. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, as we approach the end of our time, Dr. Harrison Jones, I want to mention that you're going to be doing a couple of education events for us in March. That's March of 23. So depending on when you're listening to this podcast, that date might already be passed, but we will likely have recordings of those events as well available. And Dr. Harrison Jones, where can people find or follow you? Are there any spaces where people can follow your work? I'm always driving down Michigan Road. So, you know, you can always follow me in the gold Buick. But on Facebook, Winterborn, LaPosel, Harrison Jones at gmail.com is my email. And then Facebook, my full name again, Winterborn, LaPosel, Harrison Jones on Facebook. Our church website, uh, which we're going to redo, because one of the things that our consultant told us is that we don't do a very good job of storytelling on the web. Mm. And so, They're going to take it down and reshape it so that all of these elements are properly displayed to a broader audience. But our website, as it is, I think is quite informative about the the church's history and the unique role we play within the Presbyterian and Presbyterianism. So that's WPCND, www.wpcnd.org. And then all of our worship services are always streamed on our Facebook Live page or, or whatever it's called these days. And that's at Witherspoon Presbyterian Church of Indianapolis because there is another Witherspoon. But nonetheless, ours is Witherspoon Presbyterian Church of Indianapolis. And from there, you can be placed on our email list. We have several public events coming up regardless of when you're listening to this podcast. As Matt has said, uh, there's always something happening in all of our programs, Piano Lab, you know, our harp class, We do music lessons, our vocal camp, our youth cultural circles, our knitting scenes, our storytelling. All of these things are always free and open to the public. So no matter when you're hearing this, the website at some point will be updated with new opportunities for you to engage the life of this religious community. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing that information. Next time I'm down in Indianapolis on a Sunday, I'm going to have to stop by. Thank you. It'll be our joy. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure to join with you. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Harrison Jones. Very much appreciate your time today. And we'll be looking forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much. Blessings, Shelley. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. So that was Dr. Winterborn Harrison Jones. So many good things that he said, so many things to think about. Matt, what about that interview really stood out for you? Yeah, the main thing that stood out to me is I don't know that I've ever thought of, I mentioned this, I think, in the interview itself. I don't think I've ever thought of what he called placemaking as the idea of people feeling like they belong. And he described it in the context of kind of the black church heritage But I can see how, and he even said this, we should have kept recording because he said some really good things after the interview was over. (laughs) But he even talked about how, you know, basically it's just the gospel. It's the good news that you belong here. You're a part of this community. You're a part of this place where we come and we have a creator, a divine encounter. And I had just never thought about that before. And it's just such a beautiful picture of what worship should be and and not even worship, but just the gathering of the body in whatever context that you are a person who belongs here. Yeah. And in a world that is increasingly more isolating and it seems like humans greatest longing is to be fully known as they are, not um, as their world perceives them to be, to have a space that every week you walk into and you just 
take a deep breath and think, here's where I fit. I just kept thinking during his interview, he is such a gift. Like, this is such a gift that he is so aware of this and that people can come in and just feel at home. And when he was talking about the seven-year-old who said, Pastor, I don't see myself here. And not only did he listen to that young child, but he put into action a plan to help that kid feel known and seen. And I just kept thinking, oh mm-hmm. my gosh, what what an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that reminds me of something that you said on the front end of our conversation today in this episode about the gift of small congregations and just how that kind of interactivity and inclusion is probably easier to come by in a congregation that's much smaller. And and so many congregations are, you know, when I say small, I don't mean that in a derogatory fashion because I think something like 80% of congregations in the world are under 200, 90% are under 100. So like that's the norm (laughs) of congregational life around (laughs) the world. But there is great strength in that. Yes. That like you said, being family, but then being able to develop inclusion for everybody who comes in the door. Yes, yes, I totally agree. I think one of the other things that he said that I cannot get out of my head, he said he had heard somewhere, and he didn't know who to attribute the quote to, but that every good preacher should preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Mm -hmm. And I just keep thinking, that's kind of where we're missing it. Like, Mm. God is so relevant to the entirety of our lives. God is in culture. God is in the world. But we don't connect that for people very well. And so Mm -hmm. they go through all this trauma and they go through all these trials and we don't teach them, here's where you see God. Here's Mm -hmm. where God is. And so that image of taking the Bible and the world in which we live and pointing people to where God is in it, it's just, I just can't get that out of my head. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the more profound moments for me in seminary. And I may have shared this story on an episode before, but we had a professor that helped us understand or just think through the process of if from a Christian tradition, we really believe in the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is present and active in the world. Why would we think that the Holy Spirit is only present and active in those spaces where we think it's appropriate? Why would we not think that the spirit of a divine creator that loves all would be present in all things and everywhere. And so just opening up our eyes to being able to see the influence of the divine in things that were so-called secular. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And God is in the hard places. He's in the hard spaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I'm going to be chewing on that one for a while. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I also appreciated something you said about intentionality. Something else that was really interesting to me because again, the tradition that I grew up in, we didn't have vestments. We didn't really do, you know, seasonal colors, things like that. And so I didn't have a very good view of those things. But then I began to get into spaces where people began to explain those things to me. And it's like, oh, these actually have a purpose and a meaning of how they're supposed to teach us, how they're supposed to help us think about our faith. And so that's just a whole angle that I think we miss sometimes is the intentionality. It's like, Most people don't know that if you go into a congregation where the pulpit is in the center of the room, it is most likely descended from a specific kind of theological tradition where the word is the most important aspect of what you do, the explication of the word. But then in other, and this is a difference even among Protestant Christian traditions, there are some Protestant Christian traditions where the speaker speaks from the side 
And the altar that holds the Eucharist is in the center of the stage because the center of the service is the taking of the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And just that one basic thing and where a person is standing when they're preaching makes a statement and how we can use all of these kinds of elements in how we practice gathering together to make statements about things that people may not even be conscious of. And I think it's important to educate your congregation on these things Mm -hmm. as well. Of course, every service, you can't say every single step of what happens, you know, why you do it. So sometimes it may even just kind of fly under the radar, but I think you and he even talked about how something's going to stick, right? Yep. Something is going to benefit those who are coming because of what you're doing differently. Or even sometimes the pulpits that are on the side, they're elevated for the same reason, because the word of God is elevated. Yeah. There's a lot of symbolism. And when he was talking yesterday and he was talking about giving people a place to belong, I just kept thinking, not only are you giving people a place to belong, but you're bringing what was into what is. Mm. So not only do I belong in this space, but I belong, like these are my people and they have been for a really long time. So not only Mm -hmm. do I fit here now, but I fit in this history. I fit in this, you know, ancestry. Mm -hmm. And I think in the U.S., we don't really... We don't pay a lot of attention to lineage, but there's something mm-hmm. about knowing that you also are connected to where you came from mm-hmm. and that someday you'll be a part of that for someone else. We have American Indian heritage in our family. And my daughter, she named her business. She's a horse trainer, C7. But there's this idea that you honor the seven generations that came before and you live in such a way that you preserve and honor the seven generations that are yet to come. So this idea that you look back, you look to now and you look forward and you live your life kind of in an intersection of those things. Mm. And that's what I was thinking of yesterday in part when he was talking, um, that that's what he's doing for people. Yeah. And I think I mentioned those people who came out of my faith tradition that moved into other types of Christian faith traditions that I think a lot of it was that seeking of their place in history, Mm. that we didn't like the nebulous sense that we're just here in the now, but how are we connected to the past? And I think that's such an important question and an important point. All right, well, let's move into our resources segment where we bring some of the things that we have found, the Center for Congregations has found on the topics at hand. Shelley, what did you have for resources around faith and culture, faith and the arts? One of them is the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. They had a bibliography of visual arts and worship on their website, and it just had a ton of books and ideas on how do you use visual arts, how do you use the arts in general um, in worship. And actually the whole site, if you just put in arts in worship, all kinds of articles were coming up. And so I think that's a, a really good resource, not only for theologically, why is it a good idea, but practically here's how you do it. Mm, very cool. One of the things that I found was a book by Andy Crouch called Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. And I've been a fan of his for a while. He's had some really good books and I've heard some interviews with him. But the book of culture making is from a Christian perspective, recovering our creative calling and what creative culture making looks like versus culture that makes consumers. So if you're the kind of person who enjoys books on these kinds of topics, I recommend Culture Making by Andy Crouch. Shelley, what else did you have? I discovered, I guess, that Amazon has something called groupings. I didn't even know this was a thing, and I don't know if it's a complete thing, but it was a thing for this. Yeah, see, the CRG has had that for a while. Remember our resource, the CRG, T-H-E-C-R-G dot org, and I'm willing to bet that Amazon stole that from us, <laughs> so we should we should have a conversation with we Mr. Sh- Bezos. We should. <laughs> 
But this particular grouping was called Engaging Culture, and there are 14 books listed in the group. And they were resources from a Christian faith perspective on engaging art, engaging music, engaging movies, engaging pulp culture, TV, digital world. How is God reflected in these things? How do we as Christians approach them? And so I thought there was a lot of good ideas in some of those books. Very cool. Yeah. And so definitely with that many options, you can find something that would interest you in your specific niche or your specific lane. Yeah. Cool. And the last one that we'll share is Q ideas. And when you hear Q, please don't get nervous. This is not Q Anon. (laughs) In fact, this organization put out a survey saying, should we change our name? And I think most people said no. So this is not anything to do with that political arm. So Q was founded by Gabe Lyons, and he was actually a part of, those of you who know the Catalyst Conference, he was a part of the beginnings of that as well. And his organization, Q, is interested in the seven channels of cultural influence. So there's kind of seven major channels in which we move in culture, and they're just interested in how faith and life intersect in all of those. So they have conferences, they have online videos, they have a subscription model that you can get as an individual or even as a congregation where you can check out speakers from all of these different channels that they talk about and how that relates to faith. And I've found it really helpful and really insightful in my own life and have enjoyed Gabe and his work for many years. So I'd encourage you to check out Q Ideas. And again, it is not Q Anon. Also, <laughs> if you don't go to the show notes, be careful how you search it. <laughs> you might search Gabe Lyons and then Q. That's a good one. <laughs> So as a reminder, the resources that we've mentioned, as well as the information that Dr. Harrison Jones shared about where to find him and his congregation will be in the show notes. But you can also find the resources that we're mentioning on the CRG, the Congregational Resource Guide, which is run by the Center for Congregations. They are resources that we have independently found and think are really helpful for congregational life. And so you can go to the CRG, T-H-E-C-R-G.org and search by search term, youth ministry, leadership, creativity, the arts, and you'll find resources that we think would be helpful in your congregational context. And of course, not every resource is helpful in every context, but we try to put descriptions in there to help you know whether it might be a good fit for your context or not. And we would love to hear from you if you have ideas about resources, if you have ideas for topics or speakers, if you have questions or just would like to give us a little feedback, we would love to hear from you. You can send us an email at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. And we check that inbox frequently. If you find this podcast helpful, we would love for you to rate and review us on iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is that you're listening. And those ratings and reviews help the podcast to show up in other people's algorithms so that they can also take advantage and listen. So we would love for you to rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Just a quick thank you to the Lilly Endowment. They fund our work here at the Center for Congregations and make things like this podcast possible. This episode was edited by Jaden Lee. And we also want to make sure we give our geographic shout out. So thank you to our listeners in Cold Spring, Minnesota, which is probably already really cold as of the day that we're recording this in Fort Wayne. So in Cold Springs, Minnesota, I can't imagine what your temps might be. So stay warm up there and thank you for listening. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. We will be back in a couple of weeks. For the Center, I am Matt Burke. And I am Shelley Riggs-Jordan, and we hope you have a fabulous day. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.